at least the good parts. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. How many of you had to teach your children to say, that's not fair? Anyone? It's genetic, isn't it? We have this intrinsic ability to discern not justice, but what? Injustice. I know for me and our children, they were able to say that's not fair before they had any other sentence complete because of their siblings normally or because of us. So I want to read a passage of Scripture to you, and I want to ask you to think about what's the first phrase that comes to your mind. This is a story that Jesus told, and it goes like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is is right or just. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? They answered, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and each received a denarius. So when those came who were were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. So what's the first thing that comes to your mind? It's not fair. It's not the way the world is supposed to be. Every time you read a parable of Jesus, I would encourage you to look for a couple of things. When Jesus tells a parable, what Jesus wants to do in each and every one of those is challenge some assumption or value that the people who were hearing that parable held dear. And often what happens in a parable, that particular value or that particular assumption is brought to light through some surprise in the story. Something that comes up in the story where the people who are listening to it go, what? And if you can identify in the parable that point where Jesus surprises them and challenges them about something they think or something they value, you will begin to discern 
what kind of change Jesus wanted to bring about in the lives of those who heard the parable. Now, this parable directly challenged and challenges us in our sense of fairness, in our sense of equality, in our sense of justice. And so I think it demands a little bit of our attention, don't you think? So let's look at it a little bit by bit, trying to discern how it is that Jesus could tell a parable that seems to say it's okay to be unfair. Start back at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 20 with me. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 20. Jesus tells it like this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. So when you come to the beginning of the story, Jesus sets the table for us in terms of where this is going to take place, but more importantly, who is involved in the story. In the first century Israel, if you owned land, you had the potential to build wealth. Land ownership was the difference between the haves and the have-nots. So if you owned land, you were able to create industry around you and wealth for yourself. Now the question is, who are these day laborers? In the first century world, workers were typically divided into three categories. There were, of course, those who owned the land and some of them worked their land. There were household slaves who worked for a landowner and who were cared for in the sense that they they were by the landowner. And then there were day laborers. Day laborers didn't own land, and they weren't a part of any ancient Near Eastern household. In other words, no one was responsible for them. There were laws that governed how a landowner was to care for those who were a part of the household, even his slaves. But there were no laws to provide for a day laborer. So these were the most vulnerable people in the first century world. They had no land where they could make, where they could generate wealth, and they had no one who was responsible for their welfare in that system. These day laborers would gather at a central place in a village. The landowners who needed labor for the day would come to the village and hire them. That's not very far removed from what most of us see in urban areas around the United States, where people gather waiting for someone to come and hire them for the day. And the same thing is true for most of them. They're not protected by any law. They're not a part of a labor union. No one is responsible for them. Those who hire them can essentially do whatever they want. They are the most vulnerable in that regard. These day laborers were simply put at the mercy of those who would hire them. So, this landowner, this vineyard owner, goes and hires workers. Verse 2, he agreed to pay them a denarius. That was the standard wage of the day and sent them into the vineyard. Now, the text begins to talk to us about time. 
Jesus brings up the question of when these workers are hired. The assumption is that the workday begins at 6 a.m. So the, la- the landowner goes out at 6 a.m., he hires workers. Then it says about 9 in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace. And this translation says doing nothing. That's a terrible translation. The idea is that they were just waiting. They weren't working because no one had hired them. It doesn't imply any laziness or any fault on their part. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And look at what he says in verse 4. I will pay you what is right or just. So they went. So he hires workers at 6. He hires workers at 9 in the morning. Verse 5 goes on. He went out again about noon. And then again about 3. And he hired more workers. Some at noon, some at 3. And then at 5 in the afternoon. The workday was 12 hours long. 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So with one hour left in the workday, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? And the answer is, because no one has hired us. More likely than not, those workers who were still there at 5 p.m. were the least desirable workers. Perhaps they had a physical disability. Perhaps they were known for being dishonest. Whatever might have happened, they were the ones least likely to get a job that day. And he goes back at 5 p.m. and hires them. Let me ask you a question. Was he just a really bad businessman? He didn't know how much labor he needed for the day, so he started out, and he hired a few at 6, and he goes, oh, man, this is not enough. And he went back at 9, and he hired more, and he went back at 12. There's nothing in this story to imply that he's just a really bad businessman who doesn't know how to manage his labor. Let me ask you another question. Did he have to hire anybody? Did any of them deserve work that day? Was he obligated in any way to hire any of those workers? And the answer is what? No, he was not. So the worker who was hired at six is hired because of the generosity of the vineyard owner. And the worker who was hired at nine is hired because of the generosity of the vineyard owner. And the worker that was hired at noon and three and even five o'clock was hired because this vineyard owner showed them Grace. Grace. We use that word a lot, don't we? Grace is something that Christians find at the very essence of what it means to be related to God. I'll never forget years ago, I heard a message by a preacher whose name was Stuart Briscoe. And Stuart Briscoe was unpacking, unpacking for us The relationship of mercy, God's mercy, God's grace, and God's justice. And Pastor Briscoe said it this way, justice is getting what we deserve from God. Mercy is not getting what we deserve from God. And grace is getting what we don't deserve from God. You see, the kingdom of God, my dear brothers and sisters, is governed by the laws of grace. 
And when Jesus tells this story, he brings us face to face with what it means for God to be generous and gracious toward his people. Paul describes it this way. He writes of God's, quote, glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, meaning Christ Jesus. Then he goes on in Ephesians 1, 6, in him, meaning in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches, listen to this language, the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. God's grace is extravagant. It's, it's opulent. It's, it's, it's out of control. It's over the top. What, what language do you want to use about the grace that God has poured out upon all humanity in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ? It's almost like Paul was struggling for language to be able to describe how over the top God's grace is. And, and for those of us who have tasted God's grace or embraced God's grace. It, it ought to just stun us, stop us dead in our tracks or alive in our tracks. It, it ought to take our breath away. It ought to make us go silent in jaw-dropping awe at what God has done on our behalf and then to burst forth in glorious praise. But you know, the thing about grace is not everyone thinks about it that way. And that's what happens in this parable. When evening came, verse 8, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now, if you were listening to Jesus when he told this parable, immediately your antenna would go up especially if you were someone who wasn't quite sure that this self-taught rabbi was really someone whom God had sent to reveal himself. Perhaps you're wondering whether or not Jesus is someone you ought to listen to at this point. And he tells this story, you're clued in with him, you're a little bit concerned that he kept hiring workers throughout the day, but then when he comes and he says, pay the last ones first, you're saying to yourself, something's not right at this point. The workers who were hired, verse 9, at 5 in the afternoon, they came and each received, what, one-twelfth of a denarius. Wouldn't that have been fair? Right? If he hired the first guys to work the whole day for a denarius, then, of course, they should have gotten one-twelfth of a denarius. Now, if I'm in line and I got hired at 6 a.m., and these guys got hired at 5 p.m., they worked one hour, I worked 12 hours, and they got a denarius, all of a sudden, dollar signs or denarius signs are flashing in my eyes, right? I mean, wouldn't you expect it? If those guys worked one hour and got a denarius, and I worked 12 hours, then what am I going to get? 12 right? So, when those who came, verse 10, were hired first, they expected to receive more. Well, yeah, 
but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, then they began to grumble against the landowner. And then they said thus, These who were hired last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Wah, wah. You know, Grace, Philip Yancey said, has a scent of scandal about it. The truth of the matter is, grace, as we see it expressed throughout Scripture, is scandalous. You just can't make sense of God's grace. The very first time I went to the country where I would end up living for a number of years, the country of Poland, I was teaching in a youth camp in the southern mountains of Poland. This would have been, okay, 1979. I didn't want to admit that, but yes, it was 1979. So we had gathered together in southern Poland. There were youth camps that, were bef- that had been formed by the Roman Catholic Church, and an, a U.S.-based organization had been invited to come and provide teachers. So we were in this very remote location. We met in a barn throughout the day. And basically the way it unfolded is every day those who were at the camp would come in the morning and for four hours a day, five days a week, those of us who were teaching would explain the gospel. Each camp lasted two weeks. Well, I didn't speak Polish at the time, so I had an interpreter. I found out that the interpreter I had, her name was Alina, had been recruited to come because she was a student of English at the university and she wanted to be around someone, a native English speaker from the United States. And I thought to myself, sweetheart, if you knew I was from West Virginia, you probably wouldn't want to do that. But she came. Four hours a day, five days a week, for two weeks, she interpreted me teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were using a a tract called the Four Spiritual Laws, and so we started on law one, two, three, four, five, response. And so four hours a day, five days a week, she heard the gospel presented. And it must have not been too bad an experience because she decided to stay for the next camp. So for two more weeks, four hours a day, five days a week, she heard the gospel presented and interpreted it into her language. And guess what? She signed up for the third camp. So for six weeks, four hours a day, five days a week, she heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God's grace. She was an introvert. I'm essentially an introvert, so we didn't talk much. We would show up, she would interpret, I would teach. We hung out a little bit, but we really didn't talk about anything. Each week or each camp ended with the same event on the Saturday of the last day. We would go up into the beautiful Tatra Mountains of southern Poland. Someone would have constructed a cross that was four meters long, and the crossbar was about two and a half meters. And we would put that cross on our shoulder, we take turns, 
and we would walk through the beautiful mountains dragging the cross. The idea, of course, was to come face to face with what Christ had done for us. On that last weekend, as we were walking through the mountains and we'd each taken our turn holding, dragging the cross, Alina pulled me aside. And for the first time, I saw a a fierceness in her eyes that I hadn't seen before, an intensity. And here's what she said. Mark, I have a question for you. If Adolf Hitler had believed this gospel that you've been teaching in the last moment of his life, would God have welcomed him into heaven? I said, yes. And she said, I will never believe in a God like that. And those were the last words we exchanged. I learned from her friends that eight members of her father's family had been murdered in the camps. God's grace was scandalous to Alina. She simply could not come to peace with God providing forgiveness with God providing salvation, with God welcoming into heaven someone who had done what He had done. How about you? How about me? You see, my dear brothers and sisters, the more we try to make sense out of grace based on how The world understands justice, the less sense it makes. At the end of the parable, back in Matthew chapter 20, okay, there we go. The end of the parable, back in Matthew chapter 20, he answered them, the landowner answered those who were grumbling, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. In other words, my justice is still right, it's still there. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the authority to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And so Jesus finishes the story with this. So the first, the last will be first, and the first will be last. How do we make sense of the grace of God? How do we come to peace with the grace of God? I'm not sure we can ever really make sense of it. Perhaps that's a fool's quest. But there are some ideas, I think, that will at least help us begin, perhaps, to come to peace with the scandalous nature of God's grace. First, 
we have to realize the hopelessness and the helplessness of every human being before God. Paul writes it this way, last, for as, you, as for you, meaning all of those who are reading his letter and all of us who are hearing this word today, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Last time I checked, dead people can't do much to change their situation. It's hopeless. Each and every person before God starts in the same place, unable to do anything to merit God's favor, unable to do anything to enter into a life-giving relationship with Him. All of us are dead, dead in our transgressions and our sins. We earn what we deserve, and Paul describes it like this in Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin, our sin, is death. Therefore, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Everybody starts there. Everyone, all human beings that have ever existed start right there, except for Adam and Eve. They ended up there. They didn't start there. Secondly, to come to peace with the scandalous nature of God's grace, we have to see that Christ's death satisfies God's justice. In order for God's justice to be satisfied, we have to die. So we're dead. When Christ dies, Paul Paul tells us, he dies on our behalf. He pays our penalty. And because he pays our penalty, the possibility of us experiencing the life-giving grace of God becomes real. Paul wrote it this way, God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then he added this, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, him for us. So he died in our place so that God's grace could be active in our lives. And thirdly, we can only begin to come to peace with God's grace if we realize that we have to receive it as a gift. We can't do anything for it. He extends it to us because what Christ has done for us, we can't do anything. And oh, by the way, nothing we have done is too much for the grace of God to overcome. had an uncle who died a few years back. He was a master sergeant in the Marines, a 30-year Marine. He lied about his age, got in the service early, was, saw combat in Korea, then was in Vietnam before America was in Vietnam, did several tours in Vietnam, eventually retired 30 years. I got to know him after he married my aunt, and they became a part of our community I shared the gospel with him. We read scripture together. I prayed with him. And he always said the same thing to me. Mark, God can never forgive me for what I've done. Never would talk about it. Never would describe what he had seen and what he had done in service to the country. But he knew one thing. It was way too bad for God to forgive. He died 
at the age of 87. He came to faith in Christ at the age of 79. At the age of 79, he finally admitted that God loved him, that God's grace was for him. So, I'm a theologian, therefore my math is always suspect. But I took his age, 87, and I divided it by 12. And then I multiplied it by 11. 87 is when Uncle Clarence died. Multiplied that by 11, I came to write about 79. You know what Uncle Clarence experienced? Five o'clock grace. Five o'clock, the amazing, jaw-dropping, spine-tingling, head-shaking, breathtaking grace of God that overwhelmed everything he could have ever possibly done. And here's the great part. What he is experiencing in the presence of God at eternity is exactly what all of us can experience no matter when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the miraculous grace of God. One final thing, then we'll be finished. Yes, grace is scandalous to a lot of folks. There's no question about it. But you know what's even more scandalous to a lot of folks? Graceless Christians. The author of the Hebrews writes to those who read his letter and says to this, see to it that no one misses out on the grace of God. And so I think you and I have one question to ask just about every day. When we think about all those people who know us, is the grace of God the first thing that comes to their mind when they think of us? When they think about who they are because of our presence in their lives, is the grace of God their, their frame of reference because of what Christ has done for them? Oh, that's a question worth asking every day, isn't it? Let's pray together. So we thank you, our Father, for this time together to oh, just kind of set back, sit back and, and think about something that stuns us, something that transcends logic, something that none of us can figure out how to earn on our own merit, your grace. And so we thank you for your Son, whose death was the ultimate expression of the grace that you lavish upon us. And thank you that in your grace we've been made alive. Thank you for Jesus and for his grace. Amen.